Welcome back to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, featuring none other than your gracious hosts, Dr. Michelangelo Fernando and Dr. Josh Hurwitz. We're so glad that you've joined us on this ESMO Tour de Force, Tour de France, whatever you want to make fun of me, Michael, I am okay with that. But today we are continuing our journey down the adjuvant breast cancer highway. There is so much coming out in this field that I expect in the next 10 years, we won't have to care about breast cancer. It'll be like diabetes. And I'm looking forward to that point in time. Michael, how are you going? That is a very ambitious statement, Josh Donatello Hurwitz. Um, actually, I think I preferred Michelangelo to Donatello if we had to think of the different Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but we can talk about that off screen. Um, <laughs> before before we get too distracted, Michael, why don't you hit the ground in your Ferrari and talk to us about your Checkmate 7 FL study? Wow, Josh is all over the place today. But yes, let's drag this episode back onto the road with the Checkmate 7 FL study. This is a study that is important to us as two Australians because the presenter at ESMO was an Australian professor, Shireen Loy, a medical oncologist and researcher at Peter McCallum in Victoria, Australia. And it's always nice when someone from your home country gets to present at a major conference like ESMO. So big congratulations to Prof Loy. Checkmate 7FL is a really interesting study. Josh said in our last podcast when he was talking about tumour infiltrating lymphocytes that, that immunotherapy hasn't really had the impact in breast cancer to the degree of melanoma or renal cell cancer or lung cancer. However, this study might be one of several that is about to change that. Michael, I can confirm that I did say that in the last episode. And if you haven't listened, check it out because it's just as great as this one. Fantastic. Josh took the, took the bait. Excellent. This is why we work as a well-oiled team. So well-oiled. It's so oiled we're just falling down that hill. Um, <laughs> that's that's greased, Josh. That's <laughs> something very different. I picked up the wrong thing from the store. I apologize. Yeah. All right. I'm dragging us back onto the road again. Anyway, so back to Checkmate 7FL, which is the reason you tuned into this podcast, not to hear two idiots talking about nothing in particular. This study is a randomized double-blinded trial of nivolumab versus placebo in combination with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, followed by adjuvant endocrine therapy plus minus nevo in patients with high-risk ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. So the background to this is that ER-positive breast cancer is the most common subtype of breast cancer, so it's the most common subtype of one of the most common types of cancer worldwide. High-risk disease is designated by a higher stage, younger age, grade 3 histopathology, and high-risk genomic features and low ER expression of between 1 and 10%. Treatment of high-risk early-stage ER-positive breast cancer can include neoadjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant endocrine therapy, and as we, as we have seen recently, adjuvant abemocyclib or ribocyclib. Attainment of a pathological complete response is associated with an excellent prognosis with one study demonstrating a hazard ratio of disease recurrence or death of 0.27. In previous studies, anti-PDL1 agents have been associated with improved pathological complete response or PCR rates and clinical outcomes in early 
stage and pdl one positive late-stage triple-negative breast cancer. There was a previous small study published by Nanda et al. in JAMA in t- 2020 that suggested improved PCR rates with anti pdl one agents for high-risk ER-positive breast cancer. And thus, Checkmate7FL, because, you know, it's gotten to the point where they've run out of numbers and so they're combining letters and numbers here, was born. The endpoint of Checkmate7FL was PCR rates as well as residual cancer burden with a score of 0 to 1 in an overall population as well as in a pdl one population of women with high-risk early-stage breast cancer. The inclusion criteria included newly diagnosed disease, confirmed ER positivity. In terms of pathological stage, patients had to have T1C to T2, N1 to N2, or T3 to T4, N0 to N2 staging. So if patients had a smaller primary tumour, they had to have nodal involvement, but if they had a bigger tumour, they didn't necessarily have to have any nodes. The histopathology had to be grade 3 with an ER expression of greater than or equal to 1% or grade 2 with an ER expression of 1% to 10%. They had to have all of the usual adequate organ functions, tissue available for biomarker assessment, and a good ECOG performance status. Patients were stratified according to pdl one immunohistochemistry, that's either greater than or equal to 1% or less than 1% of pdl one expression, tumor grade, either 3 or 2, axillary nodal status, positive or negative, and the frequency of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, whether it was given every three weeks or the more commonly, at least in our practice, dose-dense protocol of two-weekly. Patients were randomized to receive paclitaxel every week for 12 cycles with nivolumab or placebo, followed by ongoing nivolumab with AC every three or two weeks with matching placebo. Patients then went to surgery, whereupon afterwards they had adjuvant endocrine therapy in both arms with the investigation arm continuing their nivolumab for a further seven cycles and the nivolumab was given every four weeks. It's important to note that that the nivolumab was given every three weeks prior to surgery so there's a little bit of a change there. Now this study shows the ever-changing nature of medical oncology and how it can affect research. So the study had already been recruited, already been formulated when the data for adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors, specifically ribocyclib with Natalie and abemocyclib with Monarchy, started to come to light. So this required a protocol change. In April of 2022, the primary endpoint of the trial was changed to focus solely on pathological complete response rate and new enrolment was ceased. PDL1 patients' PCR rate was evaluated as a secondary endpoint, and originally they had event-free survival as a primary endpoint, but this was changed to an exploratory endpoint due to the effect that abemocyclib or ribocyclib in the adjuvant setting might have. They could no longer directly attribute this to nivolumab if some patients were having adjuvant CDK4-6 and some people were depending on when they were recruited. The follow-up was also reduced to one year post-surgery, and the adjuvant component became open-label. So, Through no fault of the authors or their study design, there are a number of questions that can be levelled at the uh, study design as a result of these changes. In terms of the demographics, the median age of patients in the study was 50. 93% had grade 3 histology. More than 40% had clinical stage 3 disease, a diagnosis. 34% of patients had a pd one 
expression of greater than or equal to 1%, and 80% of patients had positive auxiliary lymph nodes involved. Now we come straight to the results. First off, the surgical rate. So there was a question about whether nivolumab would have such a dramatic effect that it actually changed the percentage or proportion of patients who had full mastectomy compared to breast-conserving surgery. That was not the case. So there were no difference in the breast-conserving surgery or mastectomy surgery rates across the two groups. The PCR rate in the intention-to-treat population was 24.5% compared to 13.8%, with an odds ratio of 2.05 and a p-value of 0.0021. So it was statistically significant. In other words, you are a little more than two times as likely to have a pathological complete response with nivolumab compared to without. Things were even more dramatic in the PDL1 positive group. That's PDL1 expression greater than or equal to 1%. In this group, 44.3% of patients with Nevo compared to 20.2% of patients without Nevo had a pathological complete response with an odds ratio of 3.11. Now, that does beg the question, what happens with patients who have very little PD-L1 expression? Unfortunately for these patients, they only appeared to derive a 3.6% absolute benefit in the PCR rate. So the benefit of nivolumab in this group does appear to correspond with the degree of PD-L1 expression. In terms of safety... There were similar rates of adverse events. There was a 10% rate of discontinuation in the nivolumab arm compared to 3% in the placebo arm. Two patients unfortunately passed away in the nevo group compared to zero in the placebo group. And the rate of immune-mediated adverse events was, as expected, higher in the nivolumab arm, which is obvious, I guess. So to conclude, uh, Checkmate 7FL, the primary endpoint was met. But the benefit appeared to be far greater in patients who had pdl one expression compared to those who did not. There was no meaningful difference in the feasibility of surgery in terms of breast-conserving surgery versus mastectomy between the two arms. There will be additional biomarker data presented later. It's a very exciting improvement of an already good treatment modality and has the potential to improve outcomes in patients with high-risk but curable cancer. I guess the question is, how will this fit in with the emergence of CDK4-6? Are you going to be giving patients endocrine therapy, nivolumab, and CDK4-6 in the adjuvant setting? That has the potential to be quite toxic and quite poorly tolerated, but I guess that will be the next logical step. So, Michael, a couple of comments, first of all, for a curative condition, the fact that two patients died, I'm assuming because of nivolumab toxicities, but I'd have to look at the paper when it's published, I'd raise that as the concern. Secondarily, these are all high-risk patients, so they're all grade 3, or they're grade 2 with essentially ER low expression. So there's ER low 1% to 10%. So again, it's a very narrow cohort of patients, which I found quite interesting. And you're right, because we don't know how to sequence this or how this works or how this correlates for overall survival we know it increases pcr or doubles the pcr rate but at the same time apart from that does that actually improve their prognosis would the cdk46 do exactly the same job lots of sort of unanswered questions and i think it's probably a little bit early to 
start throwing immunotherapy, which is an expensive drug on top of CDK4, which is an expensive drug at these patients who are already going to have treatment for a minimum of five to 10 years. So just something to, I don't know, these are, these are my sort of reservations. Absolutely. And if breast cancer and particularly adjuvant breast cancer treatment has told us one thing, it's that more is not necessarily better. We've seen that with the reduction of endocrine therapy duration, really from 10 years at a maximum to seven or eight. And so whether just piling on more drugs in this space is actually producing the outcomes that we desire is something that will need to be seen. Just before we run on to the next study, Josh, I will note that there was a competing study, the Keynote 756 study, which was effectively the same study but using pembrolizumab instead of nivolumab. A couple of small differences which we won't go into, um, specifically that they have kept event-free survival as a primary endpoint. But the PCR rate was similar. The benefit was preserved in patients with ER expression that was low. They didn't specifically look at that as an endpoint. And there was no further data differentiating patients who are PDL1 high versus PDL1 low. So it will be interesting to see not just if immunotherapy is able to get its claws into this um, early breast cancer setting, but which one do we use? Because anyone who's familiar with the Australian PBS will know there can only be one. One ring to rule them all. Exactly. But um, coming back to our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle theme, Josh, why don't you, or should I say Donatello, why don't you start talking about the Neotrip Michelangelo trial? And if you don't fit in at least one cowabunga, I'm going to be very disappointed. (laughs) Michelangelo or Michelangelo, maybe I pronounced that incorrectly. Thank you so much for ruining the name. But yes, let's talk about Neotrip and I'll try and keep this brief and succinct. But there's a lot of great things in the way this trial was designed and a lot of questions that it raised. So the background is that adding atezolizumab to neoadjuvant chemotherapy in women with operable breast cancer. There was, it was previously shown that this was feasible with tolerability being okay and a non-statistically significant numerical increase in the PCR. And for triple negative breast cancer, PCR is king and it correlates to an overall survival. The primary endpoint for this trial was event-free survival at the five-year mark. And that was reported in this ESMO presentation. And there was a several exploratory analyses looking at predictive biomarkers, etc., etc. So the scheme of the Neotrip, and this is a relatively old schema, I believe, just the way we treat triple negative these days, is that they had to be HER2 negative, ERPR negative, early high risk, so T1CN1 or T2N1 or T3N0. If you don't know the sizes, that's fine. And they're all online uh, and have to have advanced unilateral breast cancer. You were given chemotherapy initially. One was with atezolizumab, one was without atezolizumab. They've used carboplatin and abraxane. Then they had surgery. And then you were followed up with four cycles of either dose sense AC or other combinations such as EC or FEC. We don't use those a lot in Australia, but I have used FEC-D in a, in a past life. Looking at the main characteristics, 
As a summary, pretty well balanced between the arms. 50% had locally advanced disease and 56% had a PDL1 positive tumor of greater than 1%. And this again was balanced. From a nodal status, 13% had N0, but predominantly there was N1 and of about 60% and the rest had N2. The methods were 280 patients randomized, about half into each arm. And here we are already, Michelangelo, at the results. So the five-year event-free survival was 70.6% in the atezolizumab arm versus 74.9%, making the hazard ratio of 1.076 with a p-value of 0.76. So in English, was not statistically significant, showing that atezolizumab in the whole treatment arm was not better than chemotherapy alone. They did some multivariate analyses, obviously, with this result. Well, not obviously, but they wanted to see if there was rationale as to why, because we know Pembro works really well, but again, Pembro is used in a different combination. And what they did, they looked at PCR, positive PDL1, and TILS. And they found that they were all prognostic and linked to better event free survival, but not predictive of a tezolizumab benefit. So, meaning there's an association, but it's not going to, there's, there's not a correlation that it's definitely going to be it's definitely going to mean that atezolizumab will do better. But what they found is a five-year event-free survival in the PCR versus non-PCR group. So this is where it's interesting. So the event-free survival with people that had PCR was 90%, and those that did not have PCR was 55.7% with a hazard ratio of 0.19. And that was in patients with the atezolizumab arm. From an adverse events profile perspective there was no real difference post-surgery and like most of the things with immunotherapy you had the classic endocrinopathies some diabetes some myocarditis but all very very low numbers the only thing that they did find which was sort of correlative to increased pcr with the tezolizumab was a high density of cd8 plus tcf1 plus ki67 which was linked to an increased pcr by the addition of tizolizumab to chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone. That's a mouthful. In summary, so you're like, okay, Josh, that was a lot of talking with not really much of an outcome. But what we found with this trial is that tizolizumab did not improve the event-free survival in triple negative breast cancer. The multivariate analysis showed some important variables, which was associated with event-free survival, but not definitive who tizolizumab benefit. None of the variables included TILs at baseline were predictive of a tezolizumab benefit, which I just said. And it's interesting because things like pembrolizumab had benefit. And you're like, Josh, why did you talk about this study? Well, Josh, I'd love to tell you why. <laughs> it's been a long day. There, there's a couple of reasons why. It was a negative study when it was published. And I think it's really important because what we find with things like immunotherapy is we give it for a year because the trial design is that way. But no one actually knows if it's going to give the benefit or do you, do you need to give a year? Can you give six months? Can you give a month? No one can actually give that answer because none of the trials are designed that way. And the amount of money that it costs to kind of have two years or a year of immunotherapy is huge. This particular trial limited immunotherapy to purely neoadjuvant, which I liked. So kind of you stopped, you had your surgery, you had adjuvant. And I, I know it's negative, but I still think it's important. But there's financial implications 
there's tolerability implications because the longer you have immunotherapy, the more, you know, there's still that chance of having an immune-related adverse event. And the other things I liked is that it kind of looks at the patient because we're going to be treating these women, predominantly women, for at least a year, maybe a year and a half with radiotherapy, maybe with further surgery, maybe they need reconstructive surgery. And that's a big part of their life and a pretty vulnerable group of patients because they're triple negative. So they're probably going to be younger. They're probably going to have families as a assumption here. And there's those, of course, that do not. And these are huge things. The final point, Michael, and I'm sorry, I haven't let you talk or ask any questions, is that we need to have better biomarkers. I think that's what this showed is that we need biomarkers to predict response so we can choose who we treat and treat effectively. And I think that's really what we need to sort of focus on Um, because once we have that answer, we can rationalize treatment and de-escalate. Rant over. (laughs) Rant over. I think that um, that is a very good summary. And I agree with you that even though on this podcast we do like to focus on the exciting stuff, the earth-shattering stuff, negative clinical trials are just as, if not more, important. I think that with this particular trial, yes, again, it raises that question, where does immunotherapy fit in? But there's lots of lots of subtleties, lots of permutations, lots of combinations. And I agree with you that the chemo proportion of it is a little bit odd based on what we give these days. But it nevertheless is important to know that for every positive immunotherapy trial, and we've talked about two on this episode, there is a negative immunotherapy trial that's asking pretty much the same question and and we don't really know what the difference is. So... It's important not to get too enthusiastic about one any individual trial, even though we're very guilty of that on this show. And Michael, for those that like to follow the royal family or the monarchy, do we want to jump to our third trial? And I, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'd love to, for you to talk about the monarchy trial. Monarchy. Oh, dear. Yes, unfortunately, no royals, no salacious rumors going on here. This is a good old clinical trial, specifically the Monarch E clinical trial, which we spoke a bit about yesterday uh, in terms of a longitudinal analysis of various factors. But this is this is the meat. This is, as Josh likes to say, the juicy stuff, because this is the five-year efficacy outcomes of the original trial. Very, very briefly, because we went through it yesterday, and as Josh said earlier, if you haven't listened to yesterday's episode or any of the other episodes, give them a listen because they're all equally rambling. But the Monarchy study was a study of adjuvant abemocyclib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, notably the only one that is given continuously, that is dosed continuously, rather than the perhaps more usual few weeks on, one week off pattern of palbocyclib or ribocyclib. And the idea was that the addition of CDK4-6 in patients with high risk early breast cancer, that is patients with at least four positive nodes or one to three nodes in combination with either grade three disease, 
a tumour of at least 5 centimetres in size, or essentially assessed high key 67 status of greater than 20% positivity, whether abemocyclib actually improved outcomes. This was a pre-planned analysis, which is always good because you know it's not sort of a post hoc analysis. This is planned right from the start of outcomes at five years. The median follow-up at this time is 54 months, which is four and a half years. All patients have completed their two-year course of abemocyclib, and greater than 80% of patients have been followed up for at least two years since completing abemocyclib. So the Monarch E database is starting to really have some weight and some heft to it, which, as we've said previously, with breast cancer trials, tends to be something that takes years because the survival is already really good. So in terms of the results, there is a sustained invasive disease-free survival benefit in the intention-to-treat population with a hazard ratio of 0.68, with a p-value of less than 0.001. If you look at the curves, they are really starting to separate out. So we are starting to, at year five, see abemocyclib superiority over endocrine therapy alone be shown, at least in this area. The benefit was consistent across subgroups, though as we always say, I will point out that the confidence interval crossed one in patients who are older than 80, had a performance status of ECOG 1, grade 1 pathology, and a stage 2 primary. So basically what you're saying is older patients who might not tolerate the treatment as well, or patients with a lower risk, that's the lower end of high risk, I guess, in this particular population, pathology are going to derive less benefit or may derive less benefit from the addition of a bemocyclic. There is also a sustained distant recurrence-free survival benefit in the intention-to-treat population with a hazard ratio of 0.675 and a p-value, again, of less than 0.001. And again, the curves are really starting to come apart. However, at year five, the overall survival data is still immature. At the moment, the hazard ratio is 0.9 with a p-value of 0.28. If you squint, you can sort of start to see that the curves appear to separate around year five, but we're still years away from getting a definitive answer about whether there is any overall survival benefit. In terms of the breakdown, so fewer patients in the abemocyclib group are alive with metastatic disease. 269 patients in the endocrine therapy alone group compared to 138 in the abemocyclib group are alive with metastatic disease, which again points to how good we are at managing breast cancer even in the metastatic state. And fewer patients within the abemocyclib group have died due to breast cancer. The safety signals are really unchanged from previous. You've got your expected GI toxicity, less hematological toxicity than something like ribocyclib, but there's unlikely to be a significant number of new safety signals now, given that most patients have actually finished the abemocyclib uh, course of two years. So to conclude monarchy, there is an ongoing benefit in invasive disease-free survival and distant recurrence-free survival. The overall survival remains immature. But with this group, this was something that was pointed out in the abstract review, we do need to be aware of late recurrences, which account for, according to one set of figures, at least 50% of distant metastatic recurrences in patients with hormone-receptor-positive breast cancer. So that's recurrences after five years. So this trial will still be giving us valuable data for years to come. Now, 
the elephant in the room for monarchy is, of course, its main rival, Natalie. Uh, Palbocyclid really is out in this area. So compared to Natalie, there are a number of differences and it's worth just going through these very quickly. So the main difference, the most obvious difference is that Natalie, that on Natalie patients had ribocyclid for three years opposed to the two years of, of abemocyclid on monarchy. 30% of patients that were enrolled in Natalie would not have been eligible for monarchy. There was an update of the Natalie data that was presented at ESMO, but this was mainly subgroup analysis. So if you're wanting to do a bit of a dirty comparison, it's not exactly helpful. In terms of the toxicity data, as mentioned, ribocyclid does tend to have more hematological toxicity, but it is worth noting that on Natalie, they started the dose at 400 milligrams and almost every patient on ribocyclid has at least one, if not more, dose reductions due to hematological toxicity. Abemocyclid, you are going to get more diarrhea. So the final questions that were raised by the discussant for this article, which I think are very much worth keeping in mind, is, as we were saying before, more treatment, particularly in breast cancer, is not necessarily better. So what is the optimal duration of adjuvant CDK4-6? If patients have intolerable toxicity, for abemocyclib, it would probably be GI toxicity. Is there any possibility of changing them to ribo? And because the duration of treatment is different from ribo compared to abema, do we need to start the clock or add another year? These are all questions that we don't know. There's also strong evidence to suggest that CDK4-6 inhibition wears off. The anti-proliferative effect reverses when you stop the treatment. So in order to prevent these late recurrences, is there any worth restarting adjuvant treatment? Are we going to be talking about courses of CDK4-6 for patients with a particularly high risk of uh, late recurrence? And finally, it's a bit of a pie-in-the-sky question to finish, but is there any role in ctDNA? Josh, you mentioned that we need better biomarkers. Would ctDNA be a biomarker that could potentially further delineate patients who are at risk of recurrence, either early or late? And can we use that as one of many tools to identify patients that would derive most benefit from a bemocyclid? Rant over. I think you saw that from me. Mikey, that's a great summary, and these are all unanswered questions which is really difficult when you're having these conversations. In Australia, for those that are interested, abemocyclib and ribocyclib are on access programs, so you can now access them through your friendly neighbourhood portal, and I'm assuming it's already very much available in the United States of America. We all wish you a good day, adieu, and we will see you on Monday for very much more ESMO fun. Yes, Josh and I have decided that we need a weekend off from recording and bringing you all of the latest and greatest, but we will be back. We don't know what we're going to be doing, but rest assured, it will probably be game-changing in some way. That it will be. Oh, tantalising, Mikey. We'll see you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.